I remember once I stumbled into a chat that was called Albuquerque something. And me as a England boy, I, 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 I remember saying, what's an Albuquerque in the chat, which immediately got a barrage of hate and like, what, what is this? Who is this? You know, um, from them. And yeah, that was the, probably the funniest, but also the worst thing I could have done. Welcome to AOL. Welcome to AOL Underground. Can we see your handle in the years you're active on AOL? Sure. So I had a few handles, but I was active on AOL from 95, 94, 95 to 2002. Uh, my handles, though, were MMT Rain, Sim116, and Sim114. My dad, I'll admit, was the one who set up MMT Rain. And now thinking about it, He's really into trains, so it probably was MM Train rather than MMT Rain. Uh, and that literally just came to me the other day when I was reading my notes uh, for this interview. That's funny. What? Why the sim in the name? Um, it's kind of a, it was just a bit of a, I want to say a nickname. I always liked the name Sim. So I thought Sim and then 114, 116 was just a, a number around my own age at the time. So, uh, yeah. Is Sims short for something? It can be Simeon. Uh, I like the name Simeon or Simon, so I quite like that. But yeah, other than that, there's nothing fancy. Honestly, my, my, I'm not a very smart man, so uh, the <laughs> subtleties kind of are lost on me, I'll be honest with you. Fair enough. So when did you first use a computer? Right, when I first used a computer, and I don't know if you've had any other British people on here, but the British audience might recognise this, but the first time I used one was must have been in the late 80s and it was a BBC micro computer. They were really big in UK schools. Um, I believe the BBC did some sort of funding thing where they threw, uh, sorry, the BBC is a British broadcasting uh, corporation uh, who's the biggest television provider here in the UK. And um, they provided loads of discounted PCs for schools and it was called a BBC micro. That would have been in around... I want to say 89, that was the first use. And it was literally, I had the, you know, the Homer Simpson clip of press any key. What's the any key? That was literally me at that point. I remember actually saying, what's the any key then to my teacher. And then when I owned my first PC, that would be, is about another European make. It's called an Olivetti Envision. It's an Italian make. And I believe it was probably the cheapest one, which is why we owned it. And that was around 94. Or 95 I think it was 95 saying that when that came out and that was a really nice PC for me at least to use because it was the first one I could officially call my own it was jet black which obviously for the time of 95 was quite unique in a way because it wasn't beige and it's a black screen really massive old CRT screen black keyboard black it was brilliant absolutely loved it it felt very Batman-esque um so that's yeah, that's why I loved it. It was slow as anything. Like it was not a good PC, like technically speaking, but it was good in terms of looks. And I remember it literally only had I want to say a seven hundred megabyte hard drive. I think because I remember trying to copy a CD, and I remember being surprised that the hard drive had got full up because I was literally just copying the WAV files. You know, they weren't even encoding down to MP. Well, MP three didn't really exist back then. But it wasn't uh, encoding down into any kind of MPEG layer. It was literally a solid WAV file. 
And I was surprised that it filled the whole thing up straight away on one CD. Uh, but that was back in, yeah, 90, 95, 96. Nice. So when did you get online? I believe, from memory, I remember going around my dad's friend's house and I'm having to refer to some notes I, did, I wrote a while back because uh, uh, my memory is terrible. But it was around, I want to say 93, 94, and he used to be a BT engineer or like a project manager for BT. And BT in the UK is British Telecom, which is, I guess, the equivalent to like an AT&T in the States. And he was a project manager slash engineer. He had an internal BT intranet program. And we were just around his house one day. And I remember him telling my dad, oh, come and come and have a look. Come and see what this program is. It's brilliant. The single the internet. Still had no idea what, like, what it was. And we went up and had a look. And it was literally from memory, I want to say very basic AOL 2.5-esque, where it had pictures, it had internal forum and e internal email and such. And he was just really excited about showing us this internal BT intranet program. Uh, and then after that, he then showed us like CompuServe or like the UK um, version, I guess, of CompuServe, which is literally, it looked like a clone of the program he'd showed us before. Literally insane. Um, so yeah, so he showed us like the different options there. And I remember him saying he couldn't, he didn't have a sound card, so we wouldn't be able to hear the dial-up connection or anything on, on that or any games. But um, so that was the first time I was online. How did you end up on AOL? I remember my dad brought home, so this was when we got our own computer then at 95, this Italian um, Olivetti computer. My dad went and got a PC magazine because back then you, you only got your information from magazines. And I remember him coming home with this glossy thing and it had back then floppy disks on the front. One of them just happened to be AOL. And again, he had a recommendation from his friend that, yeah, just get yourself a floppy disk with you know, and he got it shoved it in and kind of boot we started going through the process i remember sitting with him as he was typing in his credit card and uh, we went through and then i remember him saying and i think i might have mentioned this before where he we logged on and then he was like who on earth is steve and he had an email from steve case and it was just the welcome email saying oh thanks for signing up but he was just, so, and I remember being like, what, what's going on? But he was so perplexed with, who the hell is this Steve? Like, what? how have I got an email already? What is this? I've just signed up. Um, and yeah, it was um, it was quite, yeah, it was quite funny at the time to hear that. But that was the first time I got on AOL. And he made the mistake of having the computer in my room. And as a young guy, Oh, computer, brand new internet connection room. I spent so much time online and racked up so big phone bills. It was embarrassingly bad now thinking about it. But yeah, so that was the first time I got online. And it was just, I remember vividly, like he and I sitting there and literally just clicking on all these different options on the home screen of like, all right, what's what's user and what's... um chat forums or like what's uh what's the weather i mean oh my god you can see the weather what is this magic and it was just a really chi childish kind of experience but like childish delight of like wow what is this this is this is new this is just amazing that's great uh i really like the steve case bit too yeah. like, yeah. like <laughs> who's this chap like i, I just signed up <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we didn't know who he was, 
like it in the email from memory it doesn't it didn't even say who he was he's just like hi i'm steve case and welcome thanks for joining is that all right thanks for that great who are you <laughs> yeah that's that's funny no no context at all so you're the pc magazine you got online the computer was left in your room and then so when did you get your own screen name so that was interesting because I stumbled across that you could have different users or like different usernames. So I was rocking the MMT reign, or at least what I thought was MMT reign, um, for a, it must have been about a year or so. And then I, I, it might, I've got a feeling it was from a chat room. Someone said, oh, yeah, yeah, my, you can have loads of like use or something. Because I remember then stumbling on it and kind of being guided through, oh, yeah, you just kind of click on the and then guided through that you could have more screen names. And so I, I, I can't even remember what the first one I made even was. So I remember doing it and then being hit with this thought, this dread of like, wait a second, do we have to pay? Like, have I just, do, do you have to pay for separate usernames? And so I was like, I'll quickly delete that, delete that. Um, and then after a few days of, hang on a second, doing a bit more talking, like, hang on, what's this? So you get, and then find out, right, yeah, you can. And it doesn't charge you to have a second screen name. And, um, yeah, that was eye-opening for me because I then had my own email account, which wasn't being viewed by a parent, you know, not de- you know, not deliberately, just as a benefit of having a different screen name. Um, and because my parents, and I think most people's parents at that point, weren't very tech-savvy if they were outside the tech um, industry or the computer industry, that um, it didn't really occur to them that there was even other screen names around on their account. So it worked out in my benefit being able to jump on. And then at that point, I just kind of went wild. I was in and out of chat rooms just all the time. Uh, like, as soon as I found chat rooms, that then just became my daily staple. Um, and that's what really destroyed my parents' uh, bank accounts with um, phone bills at that point. Because it was all, you know, it, um, what would you call it, like metered, wasn't it? Like metered minutes or hours and you know, dial-up connections. That I remember, like I think I said just before, I remember one of them was like a three hundred pound phone bill. Um, I got in so much trouble for that um, at that point, and that was a month, right? Three hundred pound a month phone bill. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that was back. Well, I don't know what inflation would be now with uh, accounting for inflation, but yeah, that was back in like ninety. That must be ninety six, and so I'm guessing I don't know what it is, but yeah, definitely a few hundred pounds more than what it sounds like. But yeah, it was bad. But anyway, so yeah, on screen names. Yeah, that was that was when I kind of picked. Oh yeah, I'm gonna. I love the I love the name Simeon. So I'm just calling myself Sim one one six or Sim one one four, and I just kind of bounced around those those few. So they didn't take your computer. You think they would have, wouldn't you? You think they? I mean, you're like thinking of it. Yeah, if it was my kid, I would be doing that straight away. I'm like, what? Yeah, I'm taking the power cord. You're not having any chance of having this back. Um, yeah, they were just really. Uh, yeah, I guess my parents are quite nice thinking about it. Um, the thing is, they never used it at all. So I'm surprised, like, once my dad finally got online, he never really went online. He kind of had it, but he, I think he just liked having the ability to use AOL or the internet. Well, it would be AOL because, you know, we didn't even know what an Internet Explorer was at that point. Like, it was just an icon. In fact, I think because it was Windows 95, it didn't even come with internet. The first edition didn't even have an Internet Explorer installed on it, the original Windows 95 version. So we were just confined to AOL's walled garden and all the information inside that. So he never really used it. It was just myself. And uh, it was purely, 
purely chat rooms and then just finding like just random FDOs that were hanging about. Can you tell me about the chat rooms? Sure. So, so with AOL chat rooms, and I think your listeners will probably know a lot about this anyway, but just to reiterate, yeah, they, they were, you never really seem to find the same chat room twice because the chat rooms that were good were always oversubscribed. And so they would, I think AOL used to do this thing where they would duplicate the chat room just with the number one or number two, depending on how big they got. So you never were able to really find anyone again who you had met before, unless they were in your buddy chat that if you had, you had admin. So with chat rooms, I would always, after I realized that, I can really speak to the same people unless I really added them onto my buddy list. I would then go around and hunt around for just different random chats. It didn't matter what it was. I was still quite young, so I didn't really do anything. There wasn't any explicit chats that I went to. It was always like random things. I remember once I stumbled into a chat that was called Albuquerque something. And me as a England boy, I, 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 I remember saying, what's an Albuquerque? in the chat, which immediately got a barrage of hate and like, what, what is this? Who is this? You know, um, from them. And yeah, that was the, probably the funniest, but also the worst thing I could have done in, um, in that chat at that time. But I would always try and find random things. I remember I ended up in some like women's over forties room. And I mean, you know, now being nearly 40 myself, that's probably a pretty decent, but would have been a pretty decent chat. But at the time, I, I was just more confused than anything with what was going on. But I quite liked the just, and this is going to sound very naive, but it was like that at the time. It was a very innocent place, um, like AOL, when it came to like random chat rooms, at least. It, it, everything was quite innocent. So jumping in and out and just having the ability to be in a chat room and talk to just random people, was it was just great. It was a real, a real socialising, socialising? Social experience. Uh, that I just I just really enjoyed you know 23 years later thinking back on it now or 20 years later thinking back on it now there's a lot of things you probably shouldn't like you wouldn't have done or you definitely wouldn't be trusting people as much as you trusted them back then uh in today's world you know um and most of the chats were just oh yeah ASL ASL like just trying to find random people just trying basically I spent most of my time trying to talk to girls on AOL chat rooms and the majority of it was ASL, um, and then moving over into a buddy window chat to talk to them more. But there was a lot of trust that went on. You know, this is the day before, these are the days before scanners and digital cameras were really that prevalent. So you really just took people's word for who they were and what they looked like. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I remember I, I used to speak to a few women, to be honest, and there was one or two that, you know, I, I would say we ended up, well, yeah, there's one or two. We ended up having like a long distance relationships and, you know, we did finally meet each other and they were exactly who they said. So I was very, you know, I, at the time I wasn't surprised at all, but thinking back now, I mean, that's just like, that's catfish in a, you know, I mean, they made a TV show out of that sort of thing, catfish. So it, it was a horror show waiting to happen, but I was just lucky enough that I, I found the honest people online, I guess. Yeah, that's a great way to get kidnapped. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. I mean, yeah, I just, I don't, it was an innocent time. The late 90s and early 2000s, to me at least, seemed quite innocent when it came to online, uh, AOL online activity, at least, in the that social spec. Um, yeah. There was a, a guy, 
he uh, got involved in a romance scam. He was from a farmer in like Australia and he flew out to meet this person who said she was like living in a refugee camp in like Africa. And he got to like the airport and the people were like, oh yeah, we'll take you to her. And you know, he got in their car and you know, sure enough, he got kidnapped. And then they were like trying to ransom the family and stuff. And somehow the Australian authorities convinced the kidnappers that, oh, to get the money, you need to like go to the embassy. <laughs> and once the embassy had him, they wouldn't let him go. But he he still thought that uh, this girl was waiting for him and he was trying to like leave the embassy and stuff and they wouldn't let him leave. And like, and they were like, there is no girl. And he's like, no, she needs my help. And <laughs> this is ridiculous. Wow. Yeah. That is insane. Was that, was that a recent thing or is this um, I, back? I think it was uh, a few years ago. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because that's like that's incredible. Because you see, all, and I think this whole going massively off tangent here. I think this in this new increase in AI and generative video is just going to make all of that a lot worse. Because if you've got you know generated AI faces and pictures that you can make, you could easily scam more people like that, can you? Than um, than you used to be able to. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah. It was it was more of a. Back then, like I said, it was more, it felt more innocent at least. It might just be my rose-tinted glasses, but it felt more innocent back then. And you did just, in, well, maybe I'm just inherently trust, trust in person. But um, yeah, I, I, I was lucky then and I didn't meet any um, <laughs> kidnappers or at least none that thought I was worth kidnapping. Nice. So you did a lot of chat rooms. Was there anything else you liked about uh, AOL? So yeah, I really liked what now... I discovered they're called as FDOs. Um, so in case people don't know, it's literally just the form which pops up on AOL. If you click on weather, it pops up a window, which looks like a web page that shows you the weather. Um, and that was called an FDO. I'm not exactly sure what it stands for, or at least I do know, but I can't remember off the top of my head. And I used to try and, so there's a few things I used to like to do. There was ones that I would like to find out what random companies are on there, like Coca-Cola had an FDO uh, or a page for, for God knows who reason why, but they had one and like Cartoon Network had one and Nickelodeon had one and you know MTV had a really good interactive one with moving parts. So I like to try and find out or find companies that had them and just see what people were doing with them or what companies were doing with them. I was quite into the stock market back then purely because I found this random Joker's hat picture, what was the Motley Fool, which I then found out to be the Motley Fool. And I was like, oh, brilliant. And so the Motley Fool is just a stock market news channel. They kind of yes, do stocks and stuff. But it opened my eyes up to the stock market. And that's something I never would have known if I hadn't have been mucking around trying to find random FDOs. And so that opened my eyes to another thing of, wow, one, the stock market. But the other one was, hang on a second, there's all these companies on here. Let's have a look and see what their FDOs look like. So it was kind of a, a, a kind of a pseudo due diligence kind of thing for me as well. Not that I was investing at that point, but it was nice to kind of just bounce around and have a look at what you could actually do with these FDOs. One of the things I did really enjoy, and I don't know if this is just a UK or a, an AOL Europe thing, but they used to do, I guess what you would call find your or do your own adventure type games. So you would literally be launched into an FDO. It'd be text story with maybe a couple of pictures, and then you could choose your own adventure so you would click on i don't know option one would then take you to the next part of the story or where you would die like great have to go back to the start and so you would be flipping through different fdos to kind of finish this storyline game off um and for me that was quite new i thought that was quite an innovative way of 
of working with it. And this was before any kind of video was really on online, you know, um, not that there was video in it, but it was, it felt like you were reading a kind of a story along and it just was quite nice, you know. Nice. So when you mentioned those games that were choose your own adventure and clicking, it made me think of uh, the Life is Strange video game. I don't know if you played that, but uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I do. I do need to play it. It's actually on my Steam wish list, and it has been for about five, six, seven years. Because so, it is, you know, it's not a new game, is it? It's you know, a couple, good couple of years old now. Life is Strange, but yeah, I will get around to playing it um, at some point. But yeah, but sorry, going back to the um, FDOs, like I recently, well, I say recently, probably about six months or so ago, stumbled across the whole uh, P3OL, um, say clan, but you know, group and. It's been, it was a massive eye-opening experience for me because that really showed me a lot about FDOs and how they were even made. And it was, it was really intriguing to see exactly how they were put together and what, and what exactly the elements were made of. And, you know, as you've probably gathered already, I'm not a technical person at all. I'm not a coder. I don't um, have that spark in me to want to code because one I just don't I can't really understand it I can't get my head around it but on the other side I'm more of a visual person which is why I'm very pulled towards an FDO because I quite like the graphical setup and how different elements interact with each other and how you can make them visually interesting um, so discovering the P3OL project was brilliant and the community there is amazing and they built tools where you can create your own FDOs. And it's like, I quite find that interesting. It's quite, in a weird way, I find it quite relaxing to build the kind of graphical interface uh, for an FDO there. And they've really given me an outlet to kind of the, something I didn't even need, that I knew I needed, but they gave me an outlet of how to, well, one, discovering FDOs and how they're made and just being able to put them together and then see the effect, sorry, publish it and see the effect it has within um, within the project, has been absolutely brilliant. But yeah, no, I wanted to give a shout out to them, especially Zip, because he's he's an absolute legend with what he's done and what he's been able to do. Yeah, it's great that Zip uh, revived uh, AOL like this. So that's awesome. So you said published. So like you, I, I so last I saw, this was a while ago. Somebody made like a VB mm. program where you could drag elements and it would like write the FDO for you. Yeah. And then, but that, that was last I saw. So you're saying you made your own interface and then published it somewhere? So, yeah, I probably, well, so I've misspoke slightly. When I say published, it's published in your um, internal account area uh, as a, I guess, more of a preview, but it is still published into it, but you can preview the work that you've made. I think there's still a few more steps they're making in order to get it published into a public forum. Um, so they're not at that point yet, but you can, and there is a tool that's been made where you can put it all together, splice it all together, put elements in and navigate around and then say, I guess, for lack of a better word, you would save it, which is then published into the kind of the staging area where you can then preview it in that staging area. Um, so, yeah, so that's what I meant by publishing. OK, yeah, no, I think they were looking for like and I guess this is maybe this is an announcement for anyone. If you have an old installation of AOL, um, Definitely get in contact with the AOL folks. I know they're looking for people that have old installations because there's a file in the installation directory that it caches all of the FDOs. Um, and so if they want to be able to restore, like, in, like say, the old MTV FDO or something like that, uh, and you happen to visit that, then they can uh, get that from your old uh, installation directory. So that's probably maybe what you were doing. I don't know if it's possible. I'm just 
speculating. Maybe you're you were updating that local cache, and then they just kind of put a link to it or something. Yeah, I'm guessing so. I mean, I, I'm don't I'm not 100 sure on the technicals, but it, what you're saying is um, is very true. What I believe AOL used to do was as you would navigate around, the FDOs would be downloaded locally and saved into like a, for lack of a better word, a database-esque type file and file directory. And I guess in order for bandwidth, whenever you read or navigate back to that, it would just cache the local information, pull that back up. So going back to what you were saying, yeah, like there are probably so many old hard drives out there with this cache details and information and image files on that the guys can just pull and pull everything out of it in order to recreate certain um, elements and FDOs again. And it's sort of what um, um, you can do or what I've been trying to do in there where there's a big database of images that have been pulled from these cached databases and being able to use the um, web interface to rebuild them using these cached images um, has been quite good. And they're all images pulled from these databases. Uh, and it's been amazing because it's also got the ability for uploading images as well. So I've been going through old FDO images on Google and having a look at what they used to look like and then recreating some of the image artwork from them and uploading it on into the well, the current server, uh, staging server, to then use it in an FDO to just recreate the ones where we don't have the image files from, if that makes sense, where they're not available. I've been trying to recreate and upload uh, from there. Oh, so are, are you like... Are you part of like an, an effort with P3OL um, to create FDOs that don't exist anymore? Try, yeah, trying to. It's incredibly early stages. Like it's it's you know as if you as you know the project is very very early on. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to be part of that in order to rebuild FDOs that don't currently exist anywhere or any form at the moment. Oh, that's awesome. Are you thinking about making one of those games like you used to play? I'd love to. Uh, yeah, I would absolutely love to. The problem with me is I'm creative, but I'm not. I'm terrible at writing, so I wouldn't be. I like if I could get a story, like an old adventure book that was, you know, out of publication or you know, royalty free, or whatever. It would be. It would be pretty awesome to to create an FDO or FD multiple FDOs in a in a sequence. I hadn't actually thought of that, but that would be a really good idea. Nice. Yeah, that sounds cool. Oh, well, thank you for suggesting it. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so. You spend a lot of time browsing the FDOs and in chat rooms. Did you ever get interested or pulled into the, any of the like whereas stuff or the the program scene? So I'm quite, as you, if you probably haven't realized already, I'm quite straight laced. Um, just by design, I'm Catholic. So <laughs> I've got what do they call it again? Um, everyone's going to hell unless you try and try your best not to. So. Um, <laughs> So I'm quite straight-laced by design, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, so that's annoying. But I remember being in the chat rooms and it being flooded. Just every so often it'd be flooded with text and images and, or, you know, kind of ASCII artwork and stuff. And I wouldn't know, I have no idea what on earth it was. Like, I wouldn't know where it was coming from or what it even meant. But at no point did it really spark my interest in finding out what it was. If anything, it just annoyed me and I just bounced into another room. Um, yeah, so I've got, so yeah, that's probably the non-technical side of me coming out a bit, to be honest. Um, so yeah, I didn't really get into any of the wares or programming, but I did stumble across weirdly the AOL Hell webpage. Um, 
And I actually thought it was quite interesting what people were doing, uh, just in regards to like the UI design on their programs and how different elements worked. But again, going back to me not being a programmer, I didn't really understand what was going on or how they did it. And because I'm not exactly a straight A student, I'm, I'm a pretty bad C grade student at best. I wouldn't even know where to start. So I didn't have that interest to jump in. But I did see a lot of the results of all of it in chat rooms of people spamming things and booting people out and not knowing what on earth was going on, you know, in that sense. Right on. Okay. When you left AOL, I think in the notes here it says because of broadband stuff, um, when did you like find your true passion and like to, to like lead up to like what you're doing today? So 2003, got off AOL and that's sort of when I went to university as well. So that moved me out of the dial-up ecosystem completely. When we got to university, even though I'm not that tech savvy, the group of guys I lived with in our university house were to some extent more tech savvy. And we worked out a way to spoof our MAC addresses on our laptops so we could use them hardwired into the university's network completely unrestricted. So we could like, and this was an amazing breakthrough at the time. It was probably a bit silly now, but an amazing breakthrough at the time because we got the full network bandwidth for downloading. And so we just went absolutely nuts on torrents. We were just like everything, download, even stuff we didn't even, let's just download it. What every TV program, yeah, we'll just get it all. And it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. And so that's what I did during my uh, university stages after BitTorrent during that time was insane. When BitTorrent first came out and you had a university connection, it was insane. It was I loved it. I, I did it too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can only imagine the, um, the nightmare the network admins must have been going through trying to work out the, the network in bandwidths and just how to stop overloading the systems of people, you know, like we would sneak, we not, we wouldn't sneak into the university because it was always open. We would always go in at night when we knew there'd be no one really around um, and no one else really on the network to kind of monitor. And plus the IT guys would be at home. So there'd be no one really, you know, physically around. And then we would just jack in at that point and just, yeah, just unleash the beast, go wild, just download everything. And, and then we'd even do like a few like LAN parties. So we'd all be in, we'd take over one of the lecture halls and we'd all just sit there on laptops and just, you know, be playing um, like Garage Mod or whatever, just like see like CSGO and, and all that. Not that I'm a big gamer or anything, but it was, I would always be dying. But it was a really good experience, a really social kind of experience as well, followed by then going down to the bar afterwards. So it was, it was quite, you know, it was quite nice. But then, so yeah, so that's when, um, at university, I kind of lost my straight laceness a bit. And I think everyone does at university. So yeah, did a lot of that, did a lot of network kind of getting on and spoofing the MAC address in order to get kind of wild. We did try and explore the net university network, but to be fair, there was literally nothing worth looking for. I mean, I probably wasn't doing it right, but there was no real, there was nothing really open. And the things that were open were just like lecture notes and people's, you know, like un, uh, like lecture, um, um, like educators' un, unlisted file folders and that. And it was nothing really of any kind of value, you know. So we didn't really, like, do a lot of that at all. Um, 
But then after university, I then went on to, well, I managed to get a job straight out of university. And this was just before the whole financial crash. So I was you know, pretty lucky at that point. And I got a job in a small media company as a content designer, which is, or a content creator, which is completely different back then to what a content creator is today. Like, uh, like I said, I, I would never want to be in front of the camera at all. I always wanted to be behind the camera doing more production work. And so a content creator, a content designer back then was purely what you would call a producer now. So it would be more of calling people up, getting them in front of the camera and doing that, getting other people to be the, the face of, of content being made. But when I went, but the point is when I went there, I went from a university of unrestricted bandwidth of being able to do anything to a company where they had like a two megabit download speed. And this was, this wasn't a, a tiny company. There was about 30 people in it. And I couldn't, like when I got there, I was like, no, this must be a joke. This must be an absolute joke because you can't, like, you, I could literally do nothing on it. And no, but that, that was it. This entire 30 man company was run off a two megabit connection. And this was in 2006, 2007. And, it, you know, there were like 10, 20 megabit connections out there at that point. You know, even if for a small company, they were affordable. But the IT guy literally had no idea. He was very ancient, kind of old school thinking. He didn't really care. He left after a couple of years to be a copywriter. So he literally had no IT kind of uh, enthusiasm, you know, at all. But I remember when I went there, they employed me as a content creator, content designer, and they couldn't provide me with the Adobe suite because they just, they basically didn't want to pay for it. And so I then, this is when I found out about the two megabit connection. So I thought in my, well, screw this, I'm just going to download it. I mean, so... I then went to download it, and then it's about probably about twenty minutes up during the download, it obviously being slow. Uh, the IT guy comes in, says, "Hey, why are you taking all the bandwidth up? What, what's going on?" I'm going, oh, "I'm just, just, just downloading Adobe Suite." And he was like, "No, okay, you have to do this after hours because no one else can get online. We can't send emails," which is the worst. Oh, the worst thing to go from full bandwidth down to literally nothing. <laughs> Yeah, it was just it absolutely, absolutely insane. Um, so yeah, so I didn't spend long there before moving on and um, yeah, continued my, I guess, career. Uh, I worked in music TV for a long time uh, as production, uh, on the production side, uh, moved my up into like, um, like production manager and content wait, wait, manager what, what, and then channel music manager. TV? Uh, well, yeah, what is music TV? It doesn't really exist anymore. but. Um, like music, video, and entertainment um, television. So, you know, like linear TV channels, um, linear broadcast TV channels, you know, like an MTV, for example. Right. So is this like when they actually did music videos? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't, um, this was back when they still played music videos uh, or, uh, you know, I say still played. I mean, about 50% of the content was music, whereas the you know, it was still in that good ish stage before it just got flooded with absolute trash entertainment and television so yeah this is still during the music stage and after then after i was there for a long time um, and then after that i then moved into another big um uh, a big broadcaster global broadcaster and uh, yeah now i'm just more focusing on the kids side of um, production so i work for children's content and we do a lot of like cartoons and um it's it's probably the best job i've ever had it's so you have 
to think so critically about what you're doing and what the audience perception of the content you're making is and is that content even legal to broadcast? Because we handle the whole of um, what they call EMEA, which is uh, Europe, Middle East, North, uh, hang on, <laughs> Europe, Middle East, um, and Africa, or North Africa. And there's so many diverse people there with you know, diverse you know, languages and um, rules and regulations. So we have to keep all of those in mind. And for example, like, you know, you can't, um, it's illegal in Russia, for example, to, you know, to be LGBTQ plus. And we have to take that in mind with our content of like, okay, what is, what can we broadcast there? And what do we have to hold back? Or what do we have to like not, um, not show? And how do we dub certain things? And as in like redub for different languages. And yeah, it's a really, that's kind of where I came from. Um, since university, but it's a really interesting, personally at least, it's a really interesting um, area to be in just because of the diversity that's there, you know. Um, and I also do like, you know, a bit, I, when it comes to audio engineering, I think that, you know, that, that's uh, how we initially got speaking. Um, a lot of my original work in music television came from audio engineering. There's a lot of audio and podcasting that went on back then. I also did a bit of freelance work for one of the major newspapers here in the UK and there's a lot of podcasting that went on there. Um, I'm a big fan of Formula One. So we, we, I did a lot of time with like Formula One podcasting around with them. So it's um, it's kind of a, audio engineering for me is a, is a passion because where I work every day in television, it's very easy, for example, to do a transition in television because it's like, oh, look, the transition of time, swipe, and then you're into a different scene. But trying to do a scene change in audio is so much harder. Like, how do you do the transition of time in audio? Like, it's just, it can be mind-boggling. And, you know, you can do certain things where you have seen a different sound of a scene, like there's this person walking outside, you've got footsteps to show that they're outside with a bird tweeting, and then... You know, you can do the passage of time, but oh, suddenly they're in a car. So it's like, okay, there's a there's a passage of time there. But um, sorry, I've gone on a massive tangent, so I, I do apologize. No, no, it's <laughs> fine. Um, so yeah, I guess for uh, just the audience, uh, Sam's been helping edit uh, the past couple episodes for for audio engineering. Um, so definitely grateful for that. So that that's really cool that uh, you know, you still have a passion for audio engineering, even though mm. you're uh, working on the the video side as well so with with the video side are you actually editing the videos or like you producing them or how's that work yeah so i probably have to be careful because i'm not sure what i'm allowed to say and what i'm not allowed to say when it comes to my current job um so in the role that i'm in we do production from the entire um the entire workflow so we start off with what they call pre-production and this is literally um, one of our studios will, will say, okay, we have a premise, which is literally a two sentence thing. We want to make an episode of uh, Paw Patrol, for example. I don't work for Nickelodeon, but say we've got an episode of Paw Patrol and we want the, the dogs to run off and uh, get a cat out of a tree. So we work from literally the two sentences and then that will then develop into a script and then into a what they call an animatic, which is literally like a hand-drawn 100 page hand drawn of the episode that then gets turned into the next stage where it becomes a full final or a full lock what they call a locked picture which is like the animated side before they start voicing it and then they'll voice it so and then so we go all through that part 
And then once it gets delivered into us in-house, we then will potentially edit or reanimate depending on how the program is. So we give notes continually back during pre-production to say, okay, you can't do this, you can do that, you may want to change this because it's not legal in half of Europe or don't put that kid in the fridge because you legally can't do that. Those two dogs can't hold hands. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, well, at least not in the Middle East they can't. Um, So there is different things that we advise at the early stages. And then when it comes into house, if they haven't listened to us, we may need to physically change it by doing reanimation or doing some minor cuts, depending on what the circumstance and the context is. And then we'll then ship it off and then send it to um, the playout broadcast playout provider in whatever country or whatever place it's being played out into. And we also work where they call it acquisitions. So we may order a bit of content from another, like a Disney, for example, we may buy some Disney content for a license period of a few months. And we would then need to make sure they're legal for us to broadcast on whatever channels or video on demand or subscription services that um, we have. So we have, for whatever region we have. So there is a lot, it's, it's, it's a very wide scoping role or a very wide scoping team. And we do every, we try and do every stage in the production process. Um, yeah, essentially. That's really interesting. So I assume you got uh, your Adobe suite now, right? So you're probably in Adobe all day then, right? Yeah, you're telling me. Luckily, the company, this company provides Adobe because they're professionals. So yeah, I'm in Adobe. I spent, I've literally been using Adobe. Well, I mean, it's, it, well, I mean, it was Adobe Premiere Pro or Adobe Premiere wasn't even Pro when I started using it and like number seven or something back in 20, 2000 or well, 2000, 2001. Uh, so I've been using it for the past 23 years. Premiere Pro, After Effects, uh, Adobe Audition, when it used to be called Cool Edit Pro, that was back in the day. Um, yeah, and and media encoder for when we need it. But I've been really getting into the only, I guess the only little bit of code inside of me is FFmpeg because I really, really enjoy, well, I say enjoy, but really enthusiastic about FFmpeg and using that open source element to encode and and recode or remux videos because it's I just find it so efficient compared to uh, Adobe software, which even though it costs thousands of pounds, crashes continuously. So being able to use an open source bit of software at command line and being able to see the output visually um, in terms of like visual kind of code output while the files being demuxed or encoded is just brilliant. Like for me, at least I find it quite, quite interesting to see. And it gives you so much more feedback in uh, when an error occurs. So in Adobe, for example, in Adobe Media Coder, or in if you're an exporting from After Effects or Premiere, it will just say error, literally just error. And then the video will disappear if it's not finished. Whereas in FFmpeg, you've got the exact error and frame or like element that errored out. And it's, it's brilliant to be able to dissect it to that kind of minute stage. And it really does help. Like it really does help when you're batching coding so many things and being able to run it off. It, yeah, I'm a big, big fan of FFmpeg. That's really cool. So what what does the hardware setup look up look like for that? Like, do you guys have like fiber connections and stuff to like, your, like a media server or what's it look like? So again, I've got, uh, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to talk about, but I'll try and, uh, I'll talk in hypotheticals uh, if that, yeah, it's easier. So then, yeah, so 
there is um, different, I want to say nodes, and my terminology might be completely wrong here, so please do correct me, but we, we've got what they call a MAM, which is a media asset manager, and it's a big it's software which runs on top of servers, which house all the, for, for lack of a better explanation, the .mp4 files. And they're not MP4s, they're raw video files, but just... Yeah, it, are, are those really big? Are those like much bigger than Ray? Oh, it's, it's nuts. It's uncompressed, oh, it's right? Yeah, I mean, oh yeah, completely. Uh, majority uncompressed. Some of them, they do have to conform to the uh, broadcast standards. So there are there is a little bit of compression, which with every video is always going to be. Um, and they have ridiculous amount of audio channels because you've got uh, 5.1, you then got broken out, um, uh, voice only, then music and effects only. And so you have 16 at least 16 channels with every video so you can properly you know get into the minutiae of every single uh, video there and um, so at the moment if you're looking at a film you're looking like well, i want to say around 80 gigs per film um for an, an 11 minute episode probably looking around 15 gigs something like that so it, it varies in file size depending on duration of course but you've got so much metadata that's inside the file and so many broken down audio channels um it it they can be massive but so each, um, so yes, there's a MAM that runs on top of a server or there's a server that runs with MAM software and it's distributed that way. And then because it's global, you have got different nodes that I guess in there just cloned. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm guessing they're just a clone of every other node depending on where we are in the world. Like for example, the team in Dubai wouldn't be editing off the US server because of the, the latency would just be insane. So we've got them. We then have this MAM running, which has, um, proxy video files of the full um, res content or the full, full resolution content so you've got very small well, in comparison very small files which we then preview and can view the content if we need to there and we do a lot of our viewing in these small proxy files but when we need to make a change for example we can then move it over to another system where we can then edit the a copy of the original file so it's actually the way the mam setup works is quite good for redundancy because instead you never end up changing the very very original file that's being made so there could be up to around about nine versions of the same file technically there may be subtle subtle changes in each one for example it has to be what they call deflashing so a video file comes in it gets deflashed and that is to stop potential uh, seizures like of like flashing images to cause seizures so that immediately happens as soon as it comes in so then no one is at risk so once that's happened it's just a copy of the file so nothing may have changed if there's no issues it will just be a clone and so then we then clone that file in order to do any changes to it and then to make it viewable for whatever region that we send it out to so with, with the way it, it can work is that we will have different regions of the world. We'll have a potentially different version depending on what the local laws and regulations are. For example, there you may have an LGBTQ couple in one bit of content, which is great and absolutely okay in Europe, but in the Middle East, their legal requirements from the regulator says you can't promote anything around that. So that then has to be removed or just not broadcast there. Um, and then, so I've gone slightly off tangent, but if we did make, need to make a change, we then 
fire it into another system, which basically creates a copy, uh, creates a job and a copy. And the way that we've got it set up is really interesting. We used to have edit suites and most broadcasters do where it's just a, a room with a pretty heavy duty PC or computer or Mac in it and then soundproofed and massive screen so you can properly see colors and you know, proper sound levels and color levels. So you can like do color corrections if you need to and that um, very intricate you know, setups. But now because of COVID mainly, a lot of it has now gone remote. So it's, I don't know how they do it. It's really interesting though, where they've essentially gotten every edit unit and then put it into the cloud. And you, I would think latency would be a big issue, but the way that they've got it set up and the way that broadcasters are doing it now is you can literally edit from the cloud with near enough zero latency and you can make frame accurate changes to, to content, which just seems unbelievable, you know, because it's, you know, there's 20, well, depending on the region of the world you're in, there's 24 to 29 frames or images in every single second of video content. So from an animation part, point of view, if we've got to paint out, say, cleavage out of a cartoon that's going to be aired in the Middle East, we have to paint that same bit of cleavage out 20, up to 29 times per second. So, you know, that's, if you're doing a two second cut, that's almost 60 frames you happen to individually paint out in After Effects um, or in Photoshop, depending on how you want to make the change. Um, but yeah, so being able to do that remotely from home is great. Obviously, remote working is brilliant. Um, but the actual hardware and the uh, the software involved in having being able to have multi screens, which are near enough color accurate, is incredible. It, it's really, from a broadcaster point of view, is absolutely amazing. The reason I say like frame and um, color accurate is because you need to get your um, luminancy levels and picture quality spot on because the video would then fail later at a later stage because of pixelation. So they will get pulled off. It wouldn't even get to air. If there's any kind of pixelation, it won't go to air. Um, and with color correction, it, you can accidentally introduce what they call like a luminancy issue where blacks aren't really black anymore. <laughs> They're kind of gone gray. And if you don't have a broadcast and um, spec monitor, then you won't, potentially notice those issues and for this software to be remotely be able to fire down all that visual information on the fly um, and without any latency like you can just keep smacking the space bar and the video will just stop start as much as you want it's yeah it's just really incredible it's really incredible setup and i believe that's probably where a lot of the industry will go with remote editing and virtual machines that can be spun up and spun down depending on how whatever users need it at that point um, because of that ability i know our company is able to do that globally and they have global editors which log in and do exactly that and it doesn't matter where in the world they are the software will determine what the best quality of uh, service will be for that person's location and fire it down because latency like when you're using a graphics tablet and you're trying to draw you can't have any kind of latency otherwise you're going to be going off the screen with your with your pencil, or like you're going off the screen with your, um, uh, yeah, with, with your drawing, so that would work. But it's amazing where they've got it to, and it's constantly evolving. So I wouldn't be surprised if in, you know, 
10 years time, you don't even have an edit workstation anymore. You just rent by the hour an edit machine off Amazon or for a cloud, cloud company and just edit on that because you don't have to um, lay down thousands or tens of thousands of pounds on hardcore graphic um, graphics cards, for example. Um, and also from a company or from an employee point of view, they're constantly updating them. So they'll be whacking new graphics cards in. And then suddenly we're, we, you know, I, the other day, I suddenly was getting incredibly fast render times and I inquired, and I'd, oh, yeah, yeah, we've up, upgraded the GPUs in the system. And I was like, wow, okay. And that had no debt from an employee, employee point of view. There was no downtime in my work at all. I was able just to continue on. And they adapted around the um, around their staff to to make things better, which was it was really quite good. And then the system itself, um, yeah, you can tell that I enjoy using the system. You know, being able to use Adobe in the cloud is brilliant. It's just it's just really really good. That's really cool. Yeah, and then you know, when you, when you mentioned the, the faster render times, I was thinking about the MAC address mm. thing again, where you got the unlimited <laughs> bandwidth or whatever. Yeah, it's. It's, it's, yeah, it's interesting um, because obviously in, in the security is a really big thing. It's like, oh, we can't have any, you know, kind of content stolen and everything's locked down, really, really like locked down. And it's just incredible that they're able to do that while keeping everything secure as well. Um, yeah, like, it, yeah, it's just really impressive. Like you wouldn't be able to smooth, spoof a MAC address, like in the system. Yeah, now, it, I think. it used to be, I think, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I remember sometimes you could get pre like uh, shows before they aired, and I thought that it was like the TV stations were like cloning, were basically sending a copy of an episode like across across like the country, and people would, would point their big satellite dishes and intercept it, and then they would uh, get a copy of the episode before it aired, and then they would release it online. Do you, do you know anything about that? Or so I don't know about the pirate inside, but I do know a few. Um... Ish. So I guess a lot of it, and I, again, I'm trying to work out what I can and can't say here. So I apologize. But um, so there have been instances from what I've observed where content has been sent to a local playout provider or a local distributor and their systems have been compromised. And because everything is now digital or has been digital for a long time now, literally just copying the file off. I mean, the files are massive. Don't get me wrong, they are massive, but if you've got a fast enough connection, it doesn't matter. Like, it, you can still get them. And I think a lot of that was happening to some extent where, you know, it just, it, at that point, you're relying on your third-party clients or your third-party, you know, to be secure themselves. And a lot of the time, a lot of them aren't. And I'm actually surprised there's not a lot more of it going on because I, you know, because you do hear all these things, uh, things being stolen. It used to be really bad back in the day before it went digital because you would literally, or we would, well, we didn't, um, but there would literally, you would call up to get a motorbike courier and you would hand them physical videotapes, say, this needs to go to here, to this distributor, go. And there were times where that was being done on an international level and tapes were never arriving. So there were, there are broadcast tapes out there and I'm sure there's a lot of people saw a lot of content before it was aired purely because they were intercepting the tapes and just nicking them. Um, 
so yeah so there is a lot of that a lot of it now is always like digitally signed and that but for example with our um if we're working on unreleased content depending on like you know if it's um local to us or if it's coming from the states all of it is watermarked and it's all either hidden watermarks or it's a visual your email address smashed across the front and you, you're trying to look past your email address it's um it's it is more secure now but yeah you're right there is so many chances of things just being stolen and seen early there's been a few instances i'm oh, sorry there's been a few instances i won't name the series where um just in case but where I think it was even, I think it was Amazon put out the wrong episode early. And so people just grabbed it and like, down, like yeah, brilliant. And then they took it down, but th three hours between it and they'd seen the next week's episode because they'd released the wrong one. So it is just down to, you know, a lot of it is down to human error and compromised systems, really. Yeah, definitely. That's, uh, that's super interesting. Cool. So um, do you have anything else you want to share about your uh, time on AOL? Yeah. So, do you know what? I think my time on AOL meant a lot to me. It was a defining, definitely a defining point in my life. And it was, I think, just because of the age I was and the age of what the internet was as well. You know, I only see things like, like if we didn't have AOL, I think the society and the social acceptance of what even the internet is would definitely not be as forward as it is now like i think with logging on to aol it would literally say what do you want to do here's all the things you can do and at that point in the world i think we needed that or at least i definitely needed that and i think a lot of non-tech savvy people need that if we had logged on back then and it was literally internet explorer bang here's you would just be overwhelmed. I knew I would, I would be. I'm like, I don't know. What am I meant to do here? What's, what's a URL? Like, what, what is this? Um, literally, what is this Steve case? And it was, you know, it could just be so overwhelming. And I think AOL came in at such a good time because it held everyone's hand. It was like, okay, this is a big, scary new thing, but we can help you along with this. Look, this is where you can get this. And this is, you know, how you can find out what the weather is in your local groups and it just worked for me at least. And I think for a lot of other people around the same age, it, it really helped. You know, I think with parents as well, being yeah, what well, yourself being a father and and me coming coming into it shortly, I think there's a I would absolutely hate to be online now as a kid with all the social media and all, I sound really old now, but all the social media and the just the what could be perceived as pressure from the outside world of you need to do this and do that and here's exposure to everything. I think there needs to be to some extent an AOL type, ah, it's going to sound bad, but like a walled garden just because there's so much out there that I wouldn't want kids being exposed to, you know, and, and AOL to some extent back then stopped, for me at least, stopped a lot of that outside horrible world in, uh, if that makes sense. You know, there's, if you, you know, with, if you go on Google now and type in the hor most horriblest things, you'll, you could find images in seconds, but you try and do that back in 95 on AOL, it would be impossible. Like you would never be able to see graphic images to that extent, you know, 
Um, I mean, if you were desperate to look at porn, you could. But I mean, like graphic images like killings and stuff, you would never really be able to really try and uh, find that stuff unless you really, really, really knew where to look. And I think it's it's something we definitely, you know, for kids at least, it would definitely be beneficial now. Um, I know you've got like YouTube kids, and that, but who uses YouTube kids? Like, I don't know a single child that uses YouTube kids and the ones that do always complain that it's rubbish. So there's definitely, there needs to be something. And that's what, going back to the point, that's what made AOL so special. It was, in a sense, child-friendly. And it was child-friendly for adults that also didn't really know what to do and what to expect from this new worldwide internet. And um, for me, it, it really helped. I would say it probably helped making me who I was, who I am today in just, you know, slowly, slowly, here you go. This is the internet. This is a big thing. And it kind of sparked that initial creativity of, look, this is bright and colourful. And look at all these pictures and look at all these images. And look, the weather isn't just the word weather. It's a cloud with a sun and bang. So, oh, my God, yeah, it's so visual. And for me, that really works, being visual. And I think we're kind of lacking that. Uh, these days internet but anyway going back to the point that for me is what made AOL so special the time the visual elements and just how it helped guide people into this new world of what is now the internet that's great man yeah it's, it sounds like finding re-AOL or p3ol this has been renamed has really yeah. been like an outlet for you then Oh, massively. Yeah. I mean, I just, yeah, I just want to say thanks again to Zip because uh, he's really made this project um, into what it is. And, you know, Deceptio and all of the other guys, like I've just had for myself, it's just been such a good personal outlet of being able to rediscover in a way everything that was great about the classic AOL, like the community around it is brilliant. Everyone's so supportive. Like there's no... I mean, you get trolls and everything, but there doesn't seem to be any kind of trolls or anything like that in this community. It just feels really positive. There's a lot of positive vibes coming out of the um, the community, like the P3OL community. And just like, for me, that really helped. Like, I do suffer from a bit of anxiety and that, and that just really helped being embraced by such a welcoming and uh, friendly community. And, and you know, I, I, I'm, there's a, a user on there called Deceptio and I met him he was in he was in London a couple of months ago and I was like, Yeah, do you want to meet? Was, yeah, cool, go for a beer. And I yeah, I missed out on that whole oh yeah, online gaming, let's all kind of game online and make friends. I missed out on all that because I was after after me. So I've never really had that kind of, you know, that kind of um I say connection or relationship in my life. You know, I've meeting people like sporadically or from online. And yeah, it was just really nice to be able to meet someone from the community and just Again, I must just be the lucky one who meets the trustworthy people online because he was who he said he was and he was the nicest guy in the world. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just brilliant. The whole community is definitely worth checking out. If I mean, I know you, you, you know of it, but any of the listeners who don't know about it, um, definitely check it out because it's such a lovely community and they're just amazing men or amazing people. People there. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely have a link in the show notes. Uh, sure. Yeah, so thanks for uh, taking the time to come on today. I appreciate it.
Welcome to Cyberspace.